this afternoon we uh, open the scriptures and we, in connection with the sermon on Lord's Day 31, we will read two passages. The first one is Isaiah 22, verse 15 to 25, and then Matthew 16, verse 13 to 20. So we start reading in uh, Isaiah 22, verse 15. Isaiah 22, verse 15. Thus says the Lord God of hosts, Go, proceed to this steward, to Shepna, who is over the house, and say, What have you here, and whom have you here, that you have hewn a sepulcher here? As he who hewns himself a sepulcher on high, who carves a tomb for himself in a rock? Indeed, the Lord will throw you away violently, O mighty man, and will surely seize you. He will surely turn violently and toss you like a ball into a large country. There you shall die, and there your glorious chariots shall be the shame of your master's house. So I will drive you out of your office and from your position, he will pull you down. Then it shall be in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. I will clothe him with your robe and strengthen him with your belt. I will commit your responsibility into his hands, and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. The key of the house of David. I will lay on his shoulder, so he shall open, and no one shall shut, and he shall shut, and no one shall open. I will fasten him as a peg in a secure place, and he will become a glorious throne to his father's house. They will hang on him all the glory of his father's house, the offspring and the posterity, all vessels of small quantity from the cups to all the pitchers. And that day says the Lord of hosts, the peg that is fastened in the secure place will be removed, be cut down and fall, and the burden that was on it will be cut off, for the Lord has spoken. Now we continue to, uh, to read in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, chapter 16, verse 13. The 16th verse 13. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And he also said to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. 
Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. That's far this part of, uh, of God's word. This afternoon, uh, congregation, we are reminded of how important it is that our faith is a living faith. That our relationship that we have with Jesus Christ is alive for us. And we will also learn what the Bible teaches about the help we get for this. And that help comes through what we know as the keys of God's kingdom. And we will look at this whole topic through the lens of what we confess in Lord's Day 31 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Lord's Day 31. I will read Lord's Day 31 with you on page 547 of or starting at the bottom of page 546 of your book of praise. Rosie 31, question answer 83. What are the keys of the kingdom of heaven? The preaching of the Holy Gospel and church discipline. By these two, the kingdom of heaven is open to believers and closed to unbelievers. How is the kingdom of heaven opened and closed by the preaching of the gospel? Well, that's the first key. According to the command of Christ, the kingdom of heaven is opened when it is proclaimed and publicly testified to each and every believer that God has really forgiven all their sins for the sake of Christ's merits as often as they by true faith accept the promise of the gospel. And the kingdom of heaven is closed when it is proclaimed and testified to all unbelievers and hypocrites that the wrath of God and eternal condemnation rests on them as long as they do not repent. According to this testimony of the gospel, God will judge both in this life and in the life to come. Now what about the second key? How is the kingdom of heaven closed and opened by church discipline? According to the command of Christ, people who call themselves Christians but show themselves to be unchristian in the doctrinal life are first repeatedly admonished in a brotherly manner. If they do not give up their errors or wickedness, they are reported to the church, that is, to the elders. If they do not heed also their admonitions, they are forbidden the use of the sacraments, and they are excluded by the elders from the Christian congregation and by God himself from the kingdom of Christ. They are again received as members of Christ and of the church when they promise and show real amendment. As far as part of our uh, confession. In response to the preaching, we will uh, sing hymn 28, the stanzas 5 and 7. Hymn 28, 5 and 7. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, with Lord's Day 31, we are wrapping up the second part of the Heidelberg Catechism. That's the part on, on your deliverance, your salvation in Jesus. And it started in Lord's Day 5. And the first part is about our sin. Lord's Day 2, 3, and 4. And from Lord's Day 5 on, the focus was on, on, on the miracle of God's salvation. And that's, that's marvelous. That's exciting. That is moving the message of God's amazing grace. We can only glorify and praise God if you really come to think of that work of the Lord Jesus. So, 
as we meditate on this, we move almost, I would almost say seamlessly from the second part about salvation into the third part about thankfulness. And then Lord's Day 31, right in the middle of that, sounds like an odd interruption. I mean, it talks about keys. How exciting does that sound? We all know what keys are for. I'm not talking on the keys of your keyboard or other gadgets. This is about the old-fashioned things that you use to lock a door or unlock a door or a gate, whatever it is. That means that if you have the key, you can allow people to get in or you can refuse people to get in, in your front door on your property. But we will find out that this whole concept leaves us here at the end of what we confess about salvation, that leaves us here with encouragement and with a warning. And it's actually appropriate for the question after we have talked for a long time about salvation, the question is now, what do you do with your salvation? Well, you remember that you can only be saved by true faith in Jesus Christ, right? That, that makes it important to know that your faith is not just a thing, a thing that you have. Don't say, well, 10 years ago with that profession of faith, uh, I still have a book laying around, actually, that I got from the consistory. I can't find it right now, but I can find it back. So look at the book. I'm a Christian. I'm all set for now and for the, for the future. No. No, no, that's not how it works. Your faith is not a spiritual gift certificate. Yeah? Something that entitles you automatically to forgiveness and eternal life. You know, a gift certificate, you go somewhere, you purchase something, and you pull your certificate from your pocket, you need it, and there you go. It won't work that way when it comes to your faith. Faith is an activity. Faith is a daily action. Faith is that you believe, and believing is a verb. That means you need to do it. You need to live it in the choices you make every day. So you've got to make sure that your salvation is alive for you. And that's the message this afternoon. Your salvation in Jesus Christ, keep it alive. Yeah? Your salvation in Jesus Christ, keep it alive. And do so on a daily basis, with the help of the church, but as your own responsibility. Yeah, your salvation in Jesus Christ, keep it alive on a daily basis with the help of the church as your own responsibility. Congregation of Lord's Day 31 talks about the keys of the kingdom of heaven. It uses an expression that comes straight from the Bible. Jesus himself used that in the scripture passage we have read in Matthew 16. As a matter of fact, the New Testament mentions the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God very often. It's an important point in Jesus' teaching and preaching. What does it mean? What does the Bible mean with this kingdom of heaven? What's it about? To begin with, it does not refer to a particular country here on earth. 
It's a, it's a spiritual kingdom. It's a spiritual realm that cannot be located within our geographical parameters. I mean, you can find Canada on the map, or the U.S., or Costa Rica, or Kenya, whatever it is, but, but not the kingdom of heaven. That does not mean that the kingdom of heaven is not present in this world. It definitely is. Whenever and wherever in the world people acknowledge and worship God as king, there is the kingdom. Regardless of where you live in this world. And if you acknowledge God as your king, you submit to his government and to you obey his laws, you show yourself to be a citizen of that kingdom. Again, wherever you live in the world. And that becomes also visible in how you live your life. But it also becomes visible in the church. Because that's the place where the citizens of the kingdom get together for worship and for mutual encouragement. So you cannot say the church is the kingdom, but the church definitely represents the kingdom of God in this world. Now, as Christians, you have become citizens of God's kingdom. Why is that? It's because of God's grace in Jesus. But here's the question. God calls you to maintain your relationship with him as your king. And how do you do that? Well, we know how you do that. You maintain your relationship with God as your king by faith. By faith alone. Now, does it sound easy? Perhaps. But it's not. It's a challenge. For here on earth, there is not only the church as the visible manifestation of God's kingdom, here in this world, there is also the enemy of God's kingdom. That is Satan. And, and what does Satan do? Satan keeps attacking us as citizens of God's kingdom, as believers. Satan is always out there to get you. The, the point of that is that you can never take your citizenship for granted. You will have to keep it alive. Well, it is in this context that your confession speaks here about keys. And in doing so, it follows the example of Jesus himself. We read it, Matthew 16. Remember? Right in the middle of all the preaching and teaching among the Jews, Jesus asked his disciples the question, Who do people say that I am? Now they know that, of course. They list all kinds of different names, what people are saying. But they don't express themselves. So that's another question. Okay, but who do you say that I am? And then Peter comes to the fore, he confesses his faith. He says, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. That's great, of course. And Jesus responds to that. And what Jesus is saying is very powerful. Blessed are you for this. It was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And then he goes a step further. I tell you, you are Peter. And Peter means rock, right? 
And on this rock, I will build my church. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now, when Jesus picks up that terminology, keys, Jesus refers to the Old Testament. That's in the passage we've read from Isaiah 22. In Isaiah 22, the prophet Isaiah was, uh, was sent to a gentleman with the name Shepna. Shepna was the steward, the, the governor, the head butler, you can call him, um, from the royal household of King Hezekiah. Now, apparently, the Shepna was corrupt. Uh, the Bible gives a brief description about that. He had abused his high position for his own benefit. And then God says to the prophet Isaiah, I will get rid of you. I will throw you out. And I will appoint someone else to take your place. I will place on his shoulder the key to the house of David. It's going to be a big key if you have to carry that on your shoulder. You can't put it in your pockets. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. In other words, this new man, it's called Eliakim, this new man would have the authority to control the gate or the front door of the king's palace. And no one would be able to get in. No one would be able to get out without Eliakim's permission. Now, that is the kind of authority that Jesus gives to Peter. Just as Eliakim was authorized to decide who could be admitted to the king and who could not be admitted to the king, so Peter was authorized in the church, the New Testament church, to control the entrance and the exit of the kingdom of heaven. Now, Here's another interesting detail. In Matthew 16, Jesus uses the word binding and losing for that activity. That sounds kind of mysterious. But remember, what we said before, God's kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. And so you don't get in or out through a physical barrier, a wooden door or an iron gate. That's not how it works. No, whether you're in or out, that kingdom depends on your relationship with God. It depends on your salvation in Jesus Christ. Now, if you think of that, it helps us to understand the words binding and losing. What is that? To bind. To bind means to announce with authority that you do not share in the grace of God and the forgiveness of God, but that you're still bound by your sin. There's no access to God's kingdom. To lose means to declare with the same authority that you share in God's grace and mercy, that your sins are forgiven. You're no longer bound by your sin, free access to the kingdom of God. Now, you might think, uh, um, okay, that announcement, if you belong to God and in the kingdom are out, is God not the only one who can make that announcement? I mean, Peter can say whatever he wants, but he's not God. He doesn't make that decision. That's correct. That's correct. But Jesus adds here that what Peter does on earth, whether it's binding or losing, 
closing and opening will be valid also in heaven. That makes it serious business. By the way, this authority was not only given to Peter in Matthew 18, verse 18, and in John 20, verse 23, we learn that all Jesus' disciples share in the whole responsibility. Now, the Roman Catholic Church claims that this power of the keys was passed on directly from Peter to the bishops in Rome to the popes. In this concept, the pope has the exclusive authority to forgive sins. Uh, well, he's, he's the follower of, uh, of, uh, of Peter. Now, there are about one billion Roman Catholics in the world, so the Pope cannot do this all by himself. That doesn't make sense. But in practice, it is the task of the local priest. But in the end, it's all under the authority, and the Peter authority of the Pope. It's called penance. You come, go to the priest, you confess your sin to the priest, and the priest grants you forgiveness in the name of God. When you think of that concept, you can imagine that can easily lead to hypocrisy, superficiality. Make a quick stop to get forgiveness without through repentance, and bingo, you're done. That's why the Church of the Reformation broke with the system of penance. However, it remains, it remains important to remember that every day, again, you need to confess your sins. Every day again, you need to ask for forgiveness. That's how you keep your faith alive. That's how you keep your salvation in Christ alive. But if it's not to the priest, to whom do you confess your sins? Well, to the one you have offended, and that is first of all God. And, and, and who grants forgiveness if the priest doesn't do that? Well, God does grant forgiveness. You don't need a priest. You don't need a pope. You don't need a reformed minister for this. God alone knows the true depth of your repentance. And so the power of the keys is not in the hands of men. It's in God's hands. God forgives. But how does he do that? God forgives through his word. You know, as God's people... We are all under the authority of the Word of God. And so the binding and losing, as Jesus talked about, it happens by the authority of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me put it this way. If you refuse to confess your sin, if you refuse to repent, you conf and, and you refuse to, to, to turn to Jesus, the gospel will condemn you. No forgiveness. But if you do repent, and if you do confess your sin, and you do turn to Jesus, that same gospel will set you free. Okay, so far so good, but now what do Peter have to do with that? And the other apostles? Well, they are involved, not because they are so powerful or so important, but because Jesus authorized them to work with the gospel. Yeah? They are to urge you to keep your faith alive, to keep your salvation alive, to keep your relationship with Christ alive. And it's not a one-time thing, but the kingdom of heaven can be opened and closed anytime. So you've got to be alert. My salvation 
Is that a life for me? Your relationship with Christ, is that a life for you? You can ask that on a daily basis. Because on a daily basis, we need a reminder to turn to Jesus. God's promises are reliable. But God looks for the response of a living faith in your life. You really have a big responsibility in your relationship with God. For the power of sin is so strong. The temptations are many. And the temptations are everywhere. Every day. And if you think, oh, I can handle the temptations. I don't have to worry about that. Be on your guard. Always. But the good news is, we have these keys to help you. They were given by Jesus himself. They were entrusted not to one man, the Pope, but to the church as a whole. Two keys, the preaching of the gospel and church discipline. Both are given to help you keep your salvation in Jesus alive. It shows that the very nature of the church is pastoral. Preaching and discipline are the work of a shepherd. We all need to be guided. We all need to be comforted. We all need to be encouraged. We all need to be warned. We need to keep walking as God wants us to walk. Those are things you and I need to work on every day. So yeah, remaining faithful in your relationship with God living out the grace of God, keeping alive your salvation in Jesus, all this is important. So important, it needs your attention. Don't slack off. That's because God is not only the one who forgives, God is not only the one who sets free, God is also the one who will judge you and me. And you can only do so with the help of God's Word, with the Bible. You will not only need to hold on to this word, you also have to use the word, you have to apply the word, you have to live by the word. And to help us with this, God has entrusted to the church the two keys of the kingdom of heaven. The church has been given the task to urge you, to help you, all of you, together and personally, to keep your faith alive. Jesus gave his apostles the responsibility to use the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And since that time, time of the apostles, this responsibility has been passed on to all the office bearers of God's church. Now, that does not give the office bearers the, the, the right to claim authority or to claim any power, as the Pope does. But it gives the office bearers the duty to proclaim and work with the gospel of Jesus, the gospel of grace and forgiveness. The first key is the preaching of the gospel, the preaching of the word. Here, my brother, my sister, here is the very center, the heart of the pastoral care for all the sheep. In a sense, you can say that there are many other activities you could call proclaiming the gospel, like catechism instruction or uh, on a more personal level, what elders are doing in the home visits. Nevertheless, the sermon is still in the center. Well, sermons are not always popular. 
especially in the modern time in which we live, sermons need to be short and easy and simple and entertaining. But from Sunday to Sunday, the preaching of the gospel is the very heart of our worship services. We sing and we pray, we profess our faith, we give money to support other people. Every element is essential in the liturgy. But the main thing is always this. God speaks to us in His Word. His message is proclaimed and publicly testified to the whole congregation. The Lord obviously uses sermons in many ways and for many purposes. He teaches and instructs you. He comforts you. He encourages you. He strengthens you. He also admonishes you. He even warns you. And as listeners, when you sit in the pews or on the chairs, we're all different, of course. You all have different characters. You all have different life histories. You all live in different circumstances. Sometimes you face certain worries in your life. And all this really affects the impact of the preaching of the gospel. But when we think of preaching, the most incredible miracle is still this. A weak and sinful man is standing here to proclaim the word of the almighty God, the most holy God. He has a wonderful message of hope for miserable sinners. This is incredibly powerful. To proclaim in the name of Jesus to all who humble themselves, to all who believe the gospel, that God has really forgiven all their sins. And to proclaim in the name of Christ to those who refuse to repent, and, who to, and, and, and to refuse to believe that the wrath of God and eternal condemnation rest on them. This promise and this warning, they are so far-reaching. They have so much impact in the lives of God's children. So ministers can only prepare their sermons with much prayer and love and faith and carefulness and with deep respect for God and for His Word. And ministers should never let preaching deteriorate in legalistic instruction, all the do's and don'ts, or into entertaining storytelling. The message must be clear, because for the listeners it could be a matter of life or death. That's true for all of us. Yes, we're different people, but we need the same message. There's one proclamation. There's one message of God's word for the whole congregation working faith here and exposing unbelief there. Because of this, you may find that Reformed sermons come always again with basically the same message of forgiveness of sins for those who believe in Jesus. Now, perhaps you think, yes, you're right. We've heard that so often. It becomes boring. There's nothing new to be excited about. I'd rather get some practical directions for living my Christian life every day. I've heard people say that to me. I need practical directions for living my Christian life every day. Never mind all the rest. Well, you know, depending on the text, sermons do have more aspects, of course. Also those aspects. And yet, 
when preaching neglects the most wonderful news of forgiveness by grace, it will become powerless and useless. It loses its divine authority no matter how interesting it will be or how practical it may be. The reality is that in this life, our sins will always be our bigger pro biggest problem. Yeah? Sermons need to address our problems. Yeah, right. Sin will always be our biggest problem. And the preaching that ignores this is resisting God. That's why faithful preaching is the first mark of the church. A church that ignores, neglects, or mutilates the message of forgiveness by grace is frustrating the love of God. It doesn't help you to keep your salvation in Jesus alive. And that's a bad thing. That's why preachers need to examine themselves constantly. And elders supervise the preaching so that no message will be proclaimed that is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, if shepherds point into the wrong direction, what's going to happen to the sheep? With the second key of the kingdom of heaven called church discipline, uh, and, and which is elaborated on in question answer 85, of course, the church applies the same word of God but now, not for the congregation as a whole, but in the personal circumstances of individual members. And that begins very close by to each and every one of us. As brothers and sisters in Jesus, we all have the responsibility to encourage each other and to comfort each other. But also, if needed, to warn each other. Not chasing each other as police officers to find something wrong with each other, but if you see what's wrong, really, we have the responsibility to warn one another. Now, we usually like to dump the part of warning on the elders, right? But every member has a task here. And in practice, sometimes as ordinary members, you may have more and better opportunities than an elder to talk to someone who seems to be drifting away from the church and from God. Now, it's not always easy to do that in repeatedly in a brotherly manner, as the Catechism says it here. Right? And there's absolutely no room for a judgmental, self-righteous, holier-than-thou attitude. We can never have that. You'll need love. You'll need carefulness. You'll need humility. And often you need a lot of patience. And don't forget to pray. Don't forget to pray for each other. And, and not only for each other, but pray with each other. That being said, the willingness to warn each other is, you know, it's the most excellent way to put the communion of saints to the test. This is how you find out how strong our mutual love in the congregation really is. If you see someone walk away from the church, or perhaps you see somebody walk away from God. What do you do? You just shake your head. Look at that. Just shrug your shoulders. Is our love for each other as God's children only a matter of nice words? Or is it real? 
So that's, that's for each other. And then there is, of course, the task of the elders. And when they come to admonish, they must also do the same thing, repeatedly and in a brotherly manner. And whether it's at the regular home visits or at special visits to warn, the only tool the elders have is working with the Word of God. They don't have anything, any other tool to work with. Sure, you may expect your elders to be patient. You may expect your elders to be careful and sensitive and wise and full of love and compassion. But you may demand from your elders that they know the Word. And that they are able to work with the Word. And if they encounter hardening unwillingness to submit to the Word, and you don't determine that in one visit, of course, but you encounter hardening unwillingness to submit to the Word and keep the salvation in Jesus alive, then the moment may come that a brother or sister will be forbidden the use of the sacraments. And if there's no change, it might come to the ultimate step, excluded from the Christian congregation, locked out, think of the key, locked out of God's kingdom. That's a terrible thing to do. And it's a painful thing to do. It hurts the whole congregation when that happens. Now, many Christians today don't believe that the church can excommunicate people. You can't do that. You can't do that. God is love. That's true, He is. But God is also holy. And therefore, discipline should only be applied only if it is driven by pastoral love and compassion. Discipline should never be applied when people, members of the church or elders, are upset because their authority is at stake. No, no. Driven by pastoral love and compassion for those who harden themselves in sin. But it must also be very clear that we cannot pretend that it does not matter if you don't care about your salvation in Jesus Christ. It does matter. That's why the church must faithfully use both keys. My brother, my sister, when the Word of God addresses you, whether it's in the preaching is the one key, or it comes to you by a brother, a sister, elder, or minister in the framework of the second key, it is your responsibility to respond personally and so keep your salvation alive. As mentioned already, you will not receive forgiveness of sins upon the authority of the Roman Catholic priest. And you will not receive forgiveness either upon the authority of a Canadian foreign minister. No. When you truly believe, you will receive forgiveness directly from God himself. But it also becomes the personal responsibility of each and every one to believe God's word. That's why it says that you will only receive this forgiveness as often as you accept God's promises by true faith. That's an act. That's an act in your life. Right? As often as... Every time again that you accept God's promises by faith. Now that does not mean that the full reality of God's salvation 
depends on the strength of your faith. You cannot say, yeah, but I don't know, my faith is not strong enough or not big enough or whatever it is. No, no, the grace of God is always full. The grace of God is always everlasting. But you will only be able to share in the grace of God and keep your salvation in Jesus alive when you embrace your Savior with a living faith. That faith can be small, that faith can be feeble if you embrace it with a living faith. Remember, I said before, your faith is not a thing. It's not a diploma. It's not a certificate, something like that. It's action. Faith is not something that you possess. It's what you do. To believe is to entrust yourself to God. And to accept the promise of the gospel. And you must keep doing this. Because your faith has ups and downs. If you look at your own faith, you say, my faith is often weak and is never perfect. I'm often struggling in my faith. That's okay. But whenever you hear the message, renew your faith and strengthen your faith in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. See, that's why every sermon will urge you to believe. It challenges our complacency. Accept and trust. Keep your salvation alive in Jesus Christ. And you will find the kingdom of heaven wide open for you. Never-ending joy in the love of God. Now, you can refuse to accept God's promises. You can do that. But then you must know what you're doing. If you don't want to repent, if you don't want to humble yourself, if you don't want the Word of God to rule your life, if you don't want to be bothered by salvation in Jesus Christ, don't be surprised to find the kingdom of God closed for you. The kingdom of life and love and grace inaccessible. Faithful preaching of the gospel confronts you with amazing gifts. The amazing gifts of your Savior, my brother, my sister. Do you want these gifts? It's for free. has been paid for. Do you want them? How active are you actually sitting here? What are you doing with what you hear? What are you going to church for? Are you really trying your utmost to keep your salvation in Jesus Christ alive? And again, that's not just a minister claiming something. If it's about a minister, you could say, who do you think you are? No, God himself will judge in line with the gospel. God binds himself to the message of his holy word. He will say, what did you do with my word? He will say, what do you do with my promises? You know, the man on the pulpit is but a small and weak and sinful human being. You may not even like the guy. You may not even be impressed by his style. You may not always agree with the message. You have your own opinion, right? We all have our own opinions. But notice, God himself endorses the message that is according to the Scripture. Not because of the authority or the eloquence or the cleverness of the preacher, but because of the authority of his own holy word. Believe the reality of forgiving grace in Jesus. If you don't, the holy God will turn against you. 
Same gospel gifts are distributed among you through pastoral care. Pastoral care for families and individuals. And here again, you are to respond personally. And it is basically the same question of the elders of your home visits. Are you willing to listen to the word of God? Or are you not? What are you going to do with the word of God that has been spoken to you? And actually it doesn't really matter whether it was an elder of one of your brothers and sisters. Do not ignore or reject admonitions with God's word. Listen carefully to the urging tone of love and compassion. You know, it's, it's easy. It is so easy for each one of us, and I include myself, it's so easy to get stuck in stubborn resistance. Yeah, this is what you think. But I can make up my own mind. You cannot tell me what to do. Even, even if you would be confronted with the different steps of discipline, hear the urgent call of love to return to Jesus. Don't move yourself outside of the kingdom of God. You will risk your eternal salvation. Don't go there. One more thing. Your personal responsibility to keep your salvation in Jesus alive or to revive your salvation in Jesus, that personal responsibility does not expire as long as you live in this world. Even when the kingdom of heaven has been closed, as long as you live in this life, it can go open again. Your God is a loving and merciful God. And his kingdom is a kingdom of grace. So whoever you are, wherever you find yourself, whatever is wrong in your life, repent and turn to your Savior. And no matter how bad it has been in your life, no matter how bad it is going on in your life, return you your Savior and the door of his glorious kingdom will swing wide open. Amen.